everyone. I hope you're really well this week. Welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me, your host, Zoe Blasky, where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. My mission with this podcast is to help you reconnect to you, to feel happier, more joyful, calmer, and more alive, whatever that looks like for you. So maybe this podcast is going to inspire you to look at your health and self-care. Maybe it's thinking about your career and making work work for you. Maybe it's looking at your relationships or your relationship with yourself and finally addressing that inner critic and making a commitment to being kinder to yourself. So I chat to all sorts of well-being experts and game changers to help you become your healthiest, happiest and most alive version of you because that is what I think is the most inspiring thing to become for our children. So before we get into this week's episode, I just wanted to tell you a little bit about Peppy Health, who, if you're a regular listener, you will know are currently supporting the podcast. I love Peppy Health because what they've done is they've gathered together all the best practitioners for any help that we might need as parents, particularly new parents. They've vetted them, they have checked that they have all the highest qualifications and they've put them all in their site, peppy.health. It's super simple to use, you just pop in your postcode, what you might be looking for, whether that's a therapist, a physio, a lactation consultant, or any number of people that you might need on your journey. The list will come up of who is available near you, select on who you like the look of of course having loads of confidence that they will be great because they've made it onto the site and then when you go to book you can get 20% off with the code peppy p-e-p-p-y 20 that's peppy p-e-p-p-y 20 so on to this week's episode it is with Sharu Izadi who is a behavioral change specialist she is also the author of the book the kindness method So on this episode, we talk all about changing habits and behavior. And it's often said in self-development that habits underpin our whole lives. And if we can change our habits, we can change our lives. And Sheru says that the way to change these habits is to be kind to ourselves, which for some of us is quite radical because I know for me, I tried to get myself to change for years by beating myself up. And that just doesn't work, does it? So this is music to my ears, obviously being a huge teacher and fan of self-compassion and self-kindness. So I loved this conversation with Sheru and I hope you did too. Here's the episode. So Sheru, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. I absolutely loved your book. The Kindness Method. So I'm really excited to just share your wisdom and knowledge with everyone else if they haven't read it. So my first question is just for you to introduce yourself a bit. You know, what is it that you do and how did you come to be doing the work that you do today? Yeah, thank you for having me. So my background was in addiction treatment. So after I finished university, I studied psychology and psychosocial sciences and I went on to do a placement in a substance misuse service where I learned how we treat addiction in the UK. And I started picking up a lot of tools and noticing the patterns that were running through the people who were able to make really sustained changes long term. 
And what I started doing is realizing that a lot of these exercises were just motivational tools and they didn't need to be specifically used for addiction. They could be used for day-to-day habits. And I realized that a lot of them were really a lot less focused on drugs and a lot more focused on self-esteem and self-awareness and self-efficacy and kind of believing in ourselves more than knowing exactly how we're going to make changes and what we're going to change. So I started getting really interested in motivation as a concept, as a sort of hobby and putting together workshops and trialing them to see if I couldn't help people to change everyday habits as well as really ingrained, difficult ones, if you will. And I was using the exercises on myself at the same time because, you know, I had a history of very low self-esteem and negative self-talk and probably most obviously a really difficult relationship with my body where I was gaining and losing enormous amounts of weight in pretty unhealthy ways. When I started using these exercises on myself, just written exercises, really basic ones, I noticed that I started liking myself more. I started naturally wanting to treat my body with more kindness and my habits were shifting and changing a lot more quickly than they ever had before. So a few years ago, this journalist who heard what I was up to called me and said, look, I want to drink less, but I don't want to stop drinking altogether. Can you help me? And I kind of helped her to treat alcohol the way that I had learned to treat food and to start from scratch and reassess our relationship with these substances in a kinder, less punitive way. And she wrote an article. And one morning I woke up and had loads and loads of emails. So I set up a practice and called myself a behavioral change specialist. And then I wrote a book. I was very lucky to be contacted by a literary agent who said, I think there's a book in this. And that's what became the kindness method. It's essentially a collection of exercises that is designed to help people change their own habits on their own terms, how and whenever they like. And I think that's what runs through. I mean, we're obviously going to go into the kindness method, but that's what runs through your work for me is this core concept of empowerment. And what I find fascinating of what you just said is how you applied your recovery from food to alcohol. Because often with alcohol, you know, I'm in some 12-step fellowships. You know, the recovery of 12-step with alcohol is total abstinence, isn't it? But clearly you can't do that with food because we need food to live. So how did you apply then your lived experience with food into helping people change different habits, particularly around drinking is fascinating, I think. Well, I think one thing that we need to kind of remember is that food's not mind-altering and it doesn't make you not care (laughs) as quickly or effectively as alcohol does, in my experience. So I think it's important to add here that it is harder. I found working with clients and with myself, you know, I drink and it is harder to want to implement a plan when you're using a substance that's so effective at making you not care about things. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But if we put that to one side... There's a lot of things that I noticed were the same, like diminishing returns. Like a lot of the time when I ask people, when was it you were enjoying that cake the most or enjoying that glass of wine the most? It tends to be the first or second dose, not the seventh. And really trying to make that substance work for you and think about, you know, when was that sweet spot? When was the alcohol really doing a job that I was happy with? And can I have just stopped there in order to enjoy my evening more? Not because I've been bad or that alcohol is bad. Another thing was kind of understanding the line between enjoyment and abuse, which can sometimes be blurred. And sometimes you can shift from one to the other within one use. And I noticed that with my food and I notice it a lot with people who are trying to manage their drink. It's kind of hard sometimes to identify whether you're using this as a legitimate comfort and joy, which it absolutely can be, 
or whether you're using it to distract and avoid from some sort of discomfort or deal with things like boredom, et cetera, in which case you may want to think about diversifying your coping strategies. And a lot of the time, again, people like myself, who've always defaulted onto food as their substance of comfort, if you will. I see parallels too with drinking in that very often we only ever really develop that one dependency as opposed to diversifying it and think, okay, well, sometimes I'm stressed. It is nice to have some cake. And sometimes when I'm stressed, it's nice to exercise. And sometimes it's nice to have a drink. And sometimes it's nice to just do absolutely nothing. And I say nice. I guess what I mean is kind to ourselves. And sometimes I call a friend. Sometimes I go for a walk. And I think a lot of the time when we become dependent on one thing, not only are we at risk of depriving ourselves of a range of different coping strategies, but actually that one thing becomes less effective over time. So I've certainly noticed that those two major thoughts about these behaviors have a lot of overlaps. Mm, That's so interesting when you talk about use and misuse. And so how would you define addiction within that? So how do we know when we have an addiction and how do we know when we have a habit? What's the difference? Well, we are always engaging in habits. We all have habits. So if you stop doing anything, then now your habit is not doing something. That's a different story. But addiction is something that people define in in different ways. Mm. If we take the element of physical addiction out of the equation, because obviously if we're talking about alcohol, that's a huge and very dangerous and risky thing to bear in mind. I tend to look at addiction as something whereby the negatives are outweighing the positives, when you feel like you're unable to stop despite really trying to, where there's an obsession with doing something to relieve or soothe yourself, feeling fearful or anxious when you don't have access to that thing that soothes you. Even then, though, I think with a lot of these things, it's on a scale. And when we talk about humans, it isn't as black and white as that. You can feel more dependent on certain things at certain times. And I think now, you know, we look at things like being addicted to our phones. Obviously, if someone takes your phone away, you're not, for the most part, from what I understand so far, you're not going to start physically withdrawing, certainly not to a dangerous degree. But I think how you come at addiction, in my opinion, if it's a problem for you, then it's a problem, regardless of what you think you're dependent on. I love that personalized. And I totally agree. You know, we can't use these broad brush terms to think about something which is so nuanced and complex. And I loved how you talked about relieve or soothe. And you talk about that a lot in the book, actually, that actually these habits, whether it is an addiction or a habit, are often serving us. And I just wondered if you could break that down. What do you mean by that, these things serving us? When it comes to unwanted habits, very often what is now a problem was once a solution to something or may still be a solution to something. And very often when we want to change our habits, we focus on what's wrong with them and what's wrong with us. Actually, if we look at what's right with them and what they're doing for us, the purpose that they're serving or once served, not only is that a more compassionate way of dealing with ourselves and a more understanding and forgiving way, it also gives us an opportunity to think about what other perhaps healthier habits, whatever that means to all of us, we may want to put in their place. And so, you know, I found when I was overeating, it was doing all these jobs for me. It was helping me to feel calm. It was helping me to feel comforted and less lonely. It was helping me to avoid doing difficult things. And so when I got that insight, I could forgive myself for having adopted habits that I was now unhappy with. 
and I could give myself an opportunity to think, okay, what else might be able to give me comfort? What else might be able to help with my boredom? I'd identified a list of needs. And I think that's what's really important about looking at why we're doing things and not just kind of telling ourselves off for how weak we are. There's a reason. There's a reason I've adopted habits that you haven't and vice versa. And it doesn't mean one of us is weaker than the other. It just means we need to gain a little bit of insight into at what stage we needed something that's now got out of hand. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I've had Dr. Gabor Mate on the podcast, who I'm sure you're familiar with his work. And he said, the substances that we're using were once a brilliant coping strategy. I love this lens that you put on it and that he put on it because it's so kind, as you say. And we're going to delve into the kindness method, of course, and what that is. But just because you mentioned, you know, your own recovery, I think it might be interesting for the audience what things did you put in place that have enabled you? I think I read you lost and have kept off about eight stone. So what things have you used from your method that have enabled you to do that? I'd say one of the main things that helped me was, I still do this, but I initially did it just in the context of eating, is I would wake up in the morning and spend five minutes looking ahead at my day and write down the sorts of things I thought were likely to make me want to go off track with my eating plan. And they would be external things such as, you know, stress that I may experience as as a result of an interaction with a certain person or things I would tell myself, you know, like, oh, it's Thursday, which is basically Friday, which is, you know, or it's raining or any excuses I might come up with. And I would acknowledge that they were going to come up or they were likely to come up. And then next to each of those things, I would write how I'm going to behave if and when they do. And I got that idea actually two reasons. One of them was because when I was younger, during the time when I was getting my period and during my period, I would become really quite erratic. And I noticed my moods would change a lot. And so when I was younger, I started doing this thing where I'd write myself a letter where I would say, you know, during this week, be nice to yourself. Don't start any fights. Don't go through old text messages. I just wrote a bunch of stuff that just said, you know, this is how you should behave this week. Hand yourself over to me. I'm the version of you who knows how you want to get out of this. <laughs> and it started working. And then the other thing was, you know, as you'll be familiar with the 12-step model, the idea of higher power and turning your decisions over to something bigger than yourself, which I'm not really a person of faith in that sense, but I certainly have seen the value in that over and over again in my clients and people that I've worked in. And so I thought to myself, what if I turned my decisions over to that version of myself in the morning that wants the best for me before the world has had a chance to impose itself on me (laughs) and start testing me? So that's what I did. I started writing in the morning what the version of me that wants the best for me, the version of me that wants me to make decisions I'll be happy I made tomorrow. What would they want me to do? And just preempting those triggers, preempting those high risk scenarios was enough to make me have a lot more impulse control and to help me treat an urge or a craving as an alert as opposed to a command. It created space for me to stop and go, ah, I thought this would happen and I've already decided how I'm going to deal with it. So previously I'd always fallen off track, I think, because I was shocked and I kind of hoped and expected that just pure desperation to change would mean that it would be easier for me than it had ever been before. But actually, the shift took place when I started accepting that it would be difficult, but that I could do difficult things. 
And that was really important for me. And I love that, that, you know, you talk about you removed that element of surprise when it was hard because change is really hard, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I think people often say, even when they're doing things that they know will benefit them and they want to change in a way that they know will actually enjoy more, it's still difficult. A change from the status quo is scary. And I think sometimes we need to give ourselves credit for that and remember that it isn't because we're weak. It is because we're trying to create a new autopilot. Why is it so scary for us humans to change? We don't know what's going to happen on the other side. I think the predictability of how we've been going in itself is a comfort. Mm, yeah. So for someone who's wanting to change something, it's really about accepting that is what I can hear in a lot of your work as well. It's just an acceptance that it is hard. But as you so beautifully said, we can do hard things. Yeah, I think it's about expecting it to be hard and focusing not on hoping desperately that you don't come across difficulty, but focusing more on reminding yourself how capable you are of dealing with difficulty. Mm. And that's core to the kindness method, isn't it? Is pouring this self-love and compassion over the need to change. Because I think there's a sort of rhetoric, isn't there? Or there has been, I think it's changing, that the way to get ourselves to change is like beating ourselves up into change, you know, forcing ourselves to change. And you've discovered that that doesn't work as effectively as being kind to ourselves. No, I found that in those moments when I had to make a decision, certainly in the first stages of weight loss, when I was really trying to change years and years of ingrained habits, I thought about how I'd need to feel in those moments when it was hardest, when I felt most tempted to go off track. And I needed to feel good. I needed to feel as good as possible about myself, which is interesting because previously I'd always sort of thought, well, I'll feel good about myself when I've lost weight. And I didn't realize I need to feel good about myself in order to lose weight. And so that's when I realized I need to be kind to myself all day so that unkind eating behaviors sort of stick out like a sore thumb. That's such a shift, isn't it? Because so many people play the when-then game. When I've quit smoking, when I've lost the weight, when I've, you know, stopped drinking, then I'll start to like myself more. Is what you're saying is utterly the opposite of that, which is that you have to like yourself enough in order to make the change. Yeah, if you treat yourself as though you've already achieved your goals, you'll achieve them a lot more quickly. That's really powerful. Yeah, I think so. You know, now I think about the fact that for years and years and years, how illogical it was that, for example, I would say I would have a binge on a whole bunch of food that had a load of calories and fat in it. And then my reaction to that would be, well, there's no point in doing any exercise. There's no point in putting on any makeup. There's no point in taking any pride in your appearance because you're all bloated and there's no point in being nice to yourself. Aside from the fact that no one deserves to live that way, if we look at it in the context of maintaining my weight, Doing the absolute the exact opposite of that is what enables me to maintain my weight. <laughs> Encouraging myself, caring about how I feel and look, exercising, getting back on track immediately is actually the way to do it anyway. Absolutely. And I think everyone listening to this podcast is mothers. And I think, you know, when we think about how to help children who want to learn something new or try something new, you know, often we pour on them understanding, encouragement, love. You can do it, you know, especially when they're learning to walk. We don't beat them up when they fall down for the hundredth time. And yet, as you say, that's the method that we so often apply to ourselves when we're trying to change or do something different or new. 
another thing is that we tolerate their discomfort when we know that we're doing something that's better for them. Like a friend of mine who has a daughter who's recently turned one said that her daughter, she saw a cheese grater on the counter and really wanted to play with it. Yeah. Started screaming because she couldn't play with it. Obviously, my friend has got to just deal with the screaming and say, I'm afraid you're not going to be able to have that because obviously she's not going to be speaking to her child like that. I don't have a child, so this is how I assume people speak to one-year-olds. <laughs> a little bit different. <laughs> you know, but obviously what she's saying is, look, it doesn't matter how much you scream, you can't have it because I know that it's not good for you or it's dangerous. And when she told me that, it reminded me of how I learned to retrain my body and expect it to want to do the things we did before and almost expect my body to have a bit of a tantrum and try to talk me into taking things back. But we love pulling the curtains and eating all the pizza and eating all the donuts. And that's what we do. And come on, you really want to do that. And I expected my body to take a while before it caught up with my mind mm. and retrained it. But in the same way with a child, you know, you do it with compassion. You try to explain why you're doing it where possible. And ultimately you say, I understand why you want to do this. I understand why you don't know any better, but I've decided I'm going to keep reinforcing the better way until it's your normal. Mm. And that's how I feel that my mind and body have learned to sort of be on the same side. I love that. And I love how you talked earlier about writing to this higher self, wiser self. It's almost like you're reparenting yourself by engaging with that person who wants the best for you, but in a really kind, compassionate way. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's also a sense of like reprogramming to some extent. I know a lot, a lot of people who work in recovery, like Russell Brand, we talk about the fact that we're all working a program yeah. based on the ways we're taught to eat growing up, based on the things that our peers have told us, based on what the media tells us. We've just absorbed all this stuff without really thinking about it. And that has informed the way that we engage with the world. And I think what myself and many of my clients try to do at different parts of their lives is take stock and stop and do a little bit of an audit and say, how do I want to be eating? What kind of relationships do I want to have? What are my autopilot behaviors right now? How much say have I had in them developing? Which ones do I want to take with me? Which ones would I like to shed, etc.? And I think that's a prerogative that a lot of us don't have the opportunity to remember that we have unless something bad happens to us. And I think a lot of the time we don't need to wait for something bad to happen to show ourselves how resilient we are. Absolutely. And, and with Motherkind and what I'm doing, some of those, one of those big triggers, I think, for us to look at how am I behaving is having children because it can be such a mirror. And that's one of your first steps in the kindness method, isn't it? Is to do that self-reflective. And there's loads of brilliant tools in the book, really self-reflective and self-directed. One of the first exercises is to write yourself a letter, isn't it? Can you tell us about that? Yeah, to write yourself a snapshot letter. So when I was working in drug and alcohol services, there was a nurse, I think she was in Burnley. And very often when I was working in services, clients would come in the first time to ask for help. But because we couldn't really treat them that day, if you will, we would just assess them and hope that they would come back for a second appointment when the proper help really started, if you will. And very often, a lot of services like the one I was working in had trouble getting people in the second time because what would happen is they would go away and kind of normalize and minimize that moment when they really wanted help, be it a rock bottom or whatever, and they wouldn't come back a second time. 
she said that in her service, she had introduced something where she had got people to keep coming back. And that was that rather than just assess them, she would get them to write themselves a quick letter on a postcard of what they needed to hear to come back in. And if they didn't come back in, she would post it to them. She would do it in a red envelope so it didn't look like a bill. And she said that it worked a charm because it was in their own words. It was their own handwriting and it was a snapshot of how they felt in that moment. And there was no denying that. So I noticed the same thing. You know, every time I would gain even more weight and I would see like 110 kilos on the scales, I'd think, oh, God, I, I never thought this would happen. Something has to change. And then I'd normalize it. And then I would just think, oh, it's 115. And then before you knew it, you know, I just kept changing the benchmark of what was OK with me. And it wasn't okay with me. I'd always end up in the same place. So I thought that was a really powerful thing. And also a lot of the time we want to push against and be defensive when it comes to other people's words and other people putting words in our mouths, etc. And other people telling us what's important. Whereas when you write yourself a letter at the beginning of the process, it's in your own handwriting, it's in your own words, and it reminds you that whether or not you feel it now, there was a time when it was really important to you to make this change. And what are some of the other really powerful tools that people can use like that? Simple but powerful that you've really seen had an impact on your clients and readers. There's so much in the book. One of the ones that helps me is hypothetical change exercises that, again, are used so freely in substance misuse services. I'm often very quick to reiterate that no one who works in substance misuse services or indeed is in long-term recovery will be finding anything new in my book. These are tools that have been used for ages. And hypothetical change is one of them. So if you have a sort of I'll start on Monday mentality, what you do is you project into the future and just write the date in six months' time on one piece of paper. And on another piece of paper, you write the date in six months' time again. And then you just write out a picture of what life is going to look like for you if you do make a change and if you don't make a change. And the sorts of things you're going to be saying to yourself and the sorts of events that are going to be taking place and how you'll feel during them, et cetera, et cetera. And then you hold them next to each other and take a photograph of them together. And then the next time you don't feel a sense of urgency or you think I can start next week, et cetera, it becomes very clear to you that this date is coming around whether you change or not. Mm, That's powerful. Really powerful again. And yet... You know, what I love about the book and all these tools is that they're so self-directed. Like you say, the power of it is not in needing to give our power away. And I know that that's something that you really believe in, isn't it? Is that we all have the capacity to make these changes ourselves if we're given these types of tools. I think so, yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong, there's a place for expertise. But I think sometimes before we hand ourselves over to experts, we need to ask whether we have the tools to help ourselves first to some extent. And I just don't think we do. I don't think we're taught a lot of this stuff, unless you're lucky enough to have parents who know about it. I certainly didn't learn it at school. I often say, you know, at school we got taught how to fill out UCAS forms, but we didn't get taught how to deal with the rejection of not getting into a university. Yeah, absolutely. Criticism or to understand codependency or boundaries or toxic relationships or the importance of self-esteem and self-efficacy and identity. And I mean, these are just themes that didn't run through our, certainly not through the curriculum I was exposed to. And I went to a great school. Yeah, same. And, you know, I often daydream about this type of thing. And that's really one of my missions with Motherkind is because I think if we can inform through conversations like this, you know, thousands of mothers who naturally will then pass this on to our children, that gets really exciting for me. Because as you say, I think... 
you know, I don't know someone who hasn't struggled with a habit or any of those other themes that you were talking about, you know, esteem, codependency, toxic relationships. These are so, for me, far more indicative of how successful and happy someone's going to be regardless of their grades. But we could do a whole other, whole other podcast on that. I wanted to ask you about self-sabotage because it's something that I get asked about with my coaching clients and I know you talk about this. So what is self-sabotage when we're trying to make a change and why do we do it? It can be quite a complicated thing and I think if I have to say it would be remiss of me not to say that one book which is really good, it's specifically about self-sabotage, is Fight by Hazel Gale. In fact, it would just be released and it's called The Mind Monster Solution. self Sabotage is quite a complex thing and it can come back to themes like worthiness, etc. In the context of my work, self-sabotage, people think that they're sabotaging themselves, but in fact, what they're doing is underestimating how creative we can be to try and remove ourselves from our own discomfort of change. And so people will say, I'm sabotaging myself all the time. Why do I hate myself? And sometimes I'm sure the answer is yes, but a lot of the time, before it's any of that, the answer is, am I afraid of success? And when I get there, will I be disappointed? And we talk about upper limits and how much we think that we're worthy of. But yeah, as I say, in my work, it tends to be people think they're sabotaging themselves, their success, because they know that they want to achieve this thing a lot. And they think, well, then my life will be better and I really want to do it. Then why am I not doing it? Or why am I relapsing off my plan? And the reality is that a lot of the time they just didn't expect it to be as difficult as it was. And so they haven't got anything in place for the inevitable discomfort or they're shocked by how uncomfortable it can be to change, even if you're changing for the better. And so I would say in my work specifically, it's not so much that deeper element of unworthiness. Don't get me wrong. In counseling that I've had in the past, that's a theme that has come up for me a lot around you know, the moment that I get a bit of success, I go looking for something to reinforce those core beliefs that I don't deserve it or that someone's going to take it away from me. And I think a lot of women, it feeds into a lot of things like imposter syndrome that we're talking about recently. But yeah, it's a complicated one. And a lot of the time it does go back to core beliefs about ourselves from childhood. Yeah, I agree. That's been my experience of it, is that I have these core beliefs. And then if I'm able to create something that doesn't match those i.e if i've not changed those core beliefs what i tend to do is engage in some behavior as you say that reinforces those so i remember i had like the biggest episode ever on the podcast and i got like the most amount of downloads and then the following episode i messed up all the tech so it was just fascinating to me which was part of me you know that belief what was happening to me didn't match at that time like one of my core beliefs which was that you know I'm enough and I'm worthy of success so it's absolutely fascinating I you know I think it's so interesting that area we're coming to the end is there anything that we haven't spoken about that you think is really important for people to know about either you or your work or the kindness method I think just self-talk I think one thing that I like leaving people with is remembering that A lot of the time, it's not one habit or one blip from your plan that causes you to go off track or not succeed. It's the conversation you have with yourself about it. So if you think about what you would tell someone who you really love, if they want to stay on track with a plan and they've just had a blip, you would probably tell them, you know, you can do this. I believe in you. You're amazing. Think of all the other things you've done. It's just a blip. You can get straight back on track. Whereas when we talk to ourselves, it tends to be you're a failure you've just ruined it now. You may as well just start in a week. And I think whether it's food or alcohol or just dropping the ball in some way, 
it's important to think about whether we're speaking to ourselves the way that we would want the person we love most to speak to themselves, not just because that's a nicer soundtrack to have, but also because it is the way that we know by our own admission motivates us to make lasting changes and to get back on track as quickly as possible and do as little damage as we can. Mm. And all the studies are there, aren't they? I did some training with Dr. Kristen Neff and all the studies are there about showing that, as you say, you know, the results of getting where we want to get to is far more effective being kinder to ourselves than it is beating ourselves up. Absolutely. And the final question that I always ask everyone is if you could give just one gift to all the mums out there in the world, what would that one gift be and why? Good question. Can I give them the gift of sleep? Absolutely. I would give them the gift of sleep because I have so many clients who come in, you know, they're new mums or they've just had or their kid or their kids are a couple of years old and they start giving me all these lists of things that they think are wrong with them and they don't recognize themselves anymore and all these things. Why don't I have the capacity to stay on a diet? Why don't I have the capacity to go to the gym? Why don't I have the capacity to drink less? And I tell them, you know, when I have two nights in a row of not sleeping enough, my resilience plummets, let alone if I've just gone through being pregnant, giving birth, staying up all night, (laughs) all of a sudden being completely devoted to another human being, indefinitely I really don't see myself getting into leggings and going for a run over having a glass of wine so give yourself a break and realize that sleep deprivation makes us really not recognize ourselves very quickly let alone cumulatively over months or years Absolutely. I think there'll be a lot of mothers cheering at that. So thank you for that answer. And thank you so much for coming on. I've loved it. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. So that's it. Thank you for listening to the episode. I hope you really enjoyed it. And if you did, please do leave a review on iTunes. It does make a massive difference to the number of mums that we can reach with this content. If you were listening to that episode, thinking about one of your friends that they might benefit from what we were chatting about, then just tag them in on Instagram. My bio will include the link to the podcast so they can find it really easily from there. People often tell me they're desperate to share it with their friends. So if that's you, then please do. I feel like the guests that we have on the podcast, their wisdom just deserves to be heard far and wide. So help me make that happen. I'd be very grateful. And also, if you want to send me any comments or thoughts about the episode, then please pop over onto Instagram at motherkind underscore Zoe. And also just to let you know about my coaching. So I do work one-on-one with mums on my programme which is a three-month program called Reconnect to You. So if you want to work with me on taking your power back in any area of your life, then please do get in touch. Just drop me an email, zoe at motherkind.co or look on the website, www.motherkind.co. That's it. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Take care.